This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking with Vince Parry, who is a healthcare branding expert. He's worked in the discipline of marketing healthcare and pharmaceutical products for over 30 years, and uh, I get to pick his brain on some really fascinating topics. We start off talking about how marketing healthcare products is very different to marketing consumer goods and services. Vince tells us about some amazing successes, some you know household brand names that you might know of, and also some catastrophic failures of when healthcare marketing has crashed and burned. We talk about the huge money involved in getting this wrong. We talk about the really interesting legal side of things, including patents and how to name a drug. And we also take a few listener questions. So don't miss out. This is one of my favorite episodes. Let's get started. So who are you and what do you do? Hi, my name is Vince Parry. I'm the president and chief branding officer of Parry Branding Group. I'm a 30-year veteran of the health and wellness marketing industry. I specialize in branding and creating brand identities. Uh, I uh, have launched some of the most iconic brand identities in the healthcare space for products, companies, and services over the past three decades. So, Vince, thanks for coming on the show, and I'm really excited to chat to you because this is a, a really fascinating niche or kind of aspect of, uh, of marketing. Um, so, I might actually start off with um, just something you touched on there. Um, you said you, you were behind some of the most iconic brand launches in the health and wellness industry. So, maybe just tell us about uh, some of the ones that we may have heard of before. Sure. Um, Lipitor, I know that just went off patent in a number of countries or whatever, but Lipitor is uh, certainly one of my brand identities. I've worked on Botox, uh, on the medical indications, not on the cosmetic indications. Um, I've worked on Propecia, which is a hair, hair regrowing brand that I know is popular in both Australia and the United States. And um, I've worked on Colgate Total Toothpaste, as well as Dove Soap, for uh, mildness, a big a big selling recommendation among healthcare professionals. Right. So essentially, you're uh, a healthcare um, pharmaceutical, um, I guess, wellness branding expert. So I guess one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, Vince, is, um, or maybe an accusation I wanted to throw at you is, uh, you're the person that's behind all those emails I get um, about penis enlargements and um, Viagra. Is that right? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I told you there's a few surprise questions. That's one of them. <laughs> I don't do advertising. I do brand identity work. I, I try to shape the strategy behind the brand, and I try to create the promise the brand makes to customers and the visual identity that's uh, that goes into the brand. So it's really the foundational strategy behind brands. Um, I don't do any radio advertising or TV advertising, but I do critique it. <laughs> Right. Okay. Maybe a good place to start for us is, um, I know you said you've spent 30 years in the health and wellness communications industry. How is uh, marketing or, or creating brands for healthcare products different to conventional products? Well, it's a great question and it differs in so many ways. Let me see if I can sum it up fairly quickly. First of all, there's no free speech. Um, you can't say anything about a regulated uh, healthcare product, uh, a pharmaceutical or a device, any regulated product, unless you have two clinical studies, placebo-controlled clinical studies. So everything you say um, has to be clinically proven. You can't make a claim that 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 isn't even on the edge of being false. 
Uh, number two, the transaction model is very differently. With a consumer goods brand, you could walk into a store, you see an ad or you hear something online or and you say, oh, it's, it's a new kind of cheese. And you walk into the store and you pick up that cheese and you go home and you eat it. You can't do that with a, with a pharmaceutical uh, product. You have to first go to a doctor and then talk to the doctor. The doctor has to actually think you're right for the drug. And then he writes a prescription for the drug. And then you go to the pharmacy and find out that maybe the drug is not covered by your insurance. So the pharmacist might try to substitute something for it. Um, the insurance company has to decide whether they want to pay for it or not. And a healthcare brand has to appeal to every link in that chain from the patient to the doctor, to the pharmacist, to the insurance payer. Um, so that's very different than consumer brands. And lastly, Every disease state is different than every other disease state. The things that people with multiple sclerosis go through is very, very different than the things with people that psoriasis go through or irritable bowel syndrome or even erectile dysfunction. Everyone has a different motivation for what they're trying to restore in their lives using health and wellness brands. Um, so those are about the top reasons why uh, uh, healthcare branding. Healthcare branding is like playing chess compared to consumer branding, which is like checkers. It's a lot more. Com <laughs> it's a lot more complex and requires very specialized skills. Yeah, and it's almost like you're actually playing chess against like uh, three or four different grandmasters at the same time, because like you said there, you've got to appeal to many different audiences, the consumer, the physician, the health insurance company, um, and probably many others, you know, the public from a from a scrutiny perspective. So, uh, like, that's really challenging, because one of the things that is evident from a lot of the people I've spoken to on this podcast that keeps coming up from guest after guest from different industry to different industry is like know thy audience and um and make sure what you're saying is really targeted and, and specific to them which is just like in in this circumstance how do you how do you speak to like four or five different audiences at the same time well it takes a lot of time uh, and that's the other difference probably between consumer goods branding and healthcare branding healthcare branding is measured in years um i start about three years before the product ever gets on the pharmacy shelves uh, because, wow. because you have to talk to everybody and you can't just talk to people in one country. You have to talk to people in representative countries around the world. So a lot of research is done. Not surprisingly, pharmaceutical companies are, uh, you know, they're, they're just like doctors first do no harm. Let me, let me talk to as many people as I can to make sure that we don't screw this up. So we'll talk to you know, hundreds and hundreds of doctors in the United States in all different geographies. We'll talk to hundreds and hundreds of patients. Um, we'll, we'll interview, uh, academic physicians, people that are writing the papers in the clinical journals. Uh, we'll talk to insurance companies and what they call formulary, um, administrators that decide where drugs are placed on a particular hierarchy in a formulary. So it, you need time to actually talk to all these people and set up interviews with them or focus groups with them or online surveys with them. And you have to do it in the United States and in Europe. And now these days, launches are pretty much multinational now. No one just launches in one country anymore. Um, there's so much money involved that, you know, they launch in Europe, United States, Australia, Asia. Um, and a variety of different markets in South America, even now, and some of the emerging markets like India and uh, and China, even. Yeah. Okay. And it's so funny that you you said you know you're speaking to um, people and organizations three years in advance of a launch. That's just unheard of. Like my my work history is in the advertising industry, and uh, 
and sometimes we're working three weeks out, um, and <laughs> and sometimes that's actually considered a good uh, a good amount of leeway. Um, so that's just really crazy, Vince. I, I wanted to talk to you because uh, you've written a book, right? It's called Identity Crisis, um, and we can talk maybe a little bit more detail about what what that is uh, later on, and maybe why you wrote it. But um, in the book, I wanted to point out, like, you argue that healthcare brands like you know, Viagra or the Royal Melbourne Hospital um, shouldn't be approached in the same way as consumer brands like Coca-Cola or Hilton Hotels. And you've got this quote, which I love, medicines aren't soft drinks, hospitals aren't hotels. Talk to me about the impetus behind that. Well, a lot of times, even though healthcare brands, especially healthcare brands that are promoted to a consumer population rather than a medical or healthcare professional population, they hire consumer advertising agencies because you figure, okay, we're advertising to consumers, so might as well hire an agency that specializes in that. And the problem is, is that the healthcare uh, protocols for how to, to do really good branding in healthcare, um, they're very different than consumer good branding practices, practices, and the protocols for consumer goods don't work. They don't create an engagement uh, with with uh, with the comment with the public like healthcare brands do. The biggest reason is people don't want to take our products. They have to, and there's a built-in resentment about it. People hate to take pills. People hate to go to the hospital. And now imagine if you're marketing something that people resent from the very beginning. Uh, they don't like it. They don't like the way it tastes. They don't like how long they have to be on it. Um, healthcare branding is operating with one foot backwards in its, in its progress in terms of, uh, starting an engagement with the public. So, uh, no one, think about the most amazing hotel you could have. And, you know, its lobby is beautiful and it pampers you and you get into the room and there's lush bedding and it's in a, it's in a location in the city where you just, you know, you look out onto a beautiful uh, sunset or, or, or a beautiful view. And you talk about a hospital and the, the goal of, of a hospital is to get you out of there as quickly as you can because it costs too much for you to be there and they don't get paid and you don't want to be there. So um, that's why people who try to who try to market medicines like soft drinks or hospitals like hotels these consumer agencies create what i call an identity crisis a brand identity crisis because they're not engaging the customer in a way where the customer is buying something very different uh healthcare branding is well let me put it this way consumer branding is about a celebration of self you have an opinion about yourself you want to be cool you buy, you go to a cool gym you want to look like you're smart. You want to be seen reading the right magazines. Um, you say, look, I bought a new IB, uh, I bought a new, uh, BMW or I bought a new Dior bag. Um, it's a celebration and reaffirmation of identity. No one runs around. Well, at least in commercials, they do, but not in the real world saying, I love my laxative, you know, and <laughs> wow, yeah. look at this new blood pressure medication I'm on. It's fantastic, you know. Um, the, the best thing about a healthcare uh, brand that it could say to someone is no one's going to know you're on it. It's, it has to be discreet. And the reason is, is because healthcare branding is a restoration of self. Part of yourself is lost to illness. And so what you're trying to buy when you're buying a healthcare brand is what illness has taken away, what illness has stolen from you. And that is a very different emotional and physical transaction than a consumer goods model. And so whenever I look on TV here in the United States 
or I'd look at the mascots that are created for different pharmaceutical brands. You know, just like they're trying to use consumer techniques to do it, it perpetrates an identity crisis in these brands, and these brands don't succeed for that very reason. People are turned off by them. They think the commercials are corny, or they don't trust them, or they just think the wool is being pulled over their eyes, and they roll or they roll their eyes. Um, it, it's really hurting uh, all the good that these brands actually do for people. Yeah, and and you mentioned trust there, and that's something I think that's going to come up quite a few times in this discussion today. It actually leads me quite nicely to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is about um, what you call the healthcare bump. As a trusted resource for their patients, a doctor's recommendation carries an enormous amount of weight, and consumer brands can open up new marketing avenues by learning strategies and, and marketing directly to these physicians. I guess I wanted to ask... What challenges do healthcare brands have when they're when there are intermediaries in between the end user and uh, and and the maker of the product itself? Well, it's that's that's the key to the dynamic. There is that you again, once again, you can't just go into a store and buy these products. You have to have a dialogue with your physician, uh, some kind of dialogue, either face to face or on the phone or online. Um, and the problem is, is that you have to promote to the doctor. You have to let the doctor know about the brand at least six months, at least six months before the consumer ever hears about it. And the reason is, is that doctors are one of the most educated, uh, groups of people on the planet. You know, they have four to eight years of postgraduate education. And the last thing they want to feel is stupid or uninformed. So imagine if a consumer comes in, says, hey, I just saw this new commercial on TV for this hepatitis C drug. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Maybe I should be on it. And the doctor hasn't heard of it. There's no dialogue. The, the whole conversation gets shut down. The doctor probably writes a nasty email to the pharmaceutical company saying, why is this the first time I'm hearing about it? So you have to broker the psychology between a doctor who's not taking the medication themselves, but rather who's advocating it for somebody else. And you have to create the brand in the image of that doctor. A doctor has to see a flattering reflection of their own standard of care in the device or the pharmaceutical that he or she is advocating for the patient. So that's why healthcare brands, the, per the personality for healthcare brands have to be responsible and straightforward and trustworthy and considerate and caring and kind, not a flashy word in there, you know, not, not bold or, or uh, fun or cool or anything like that. Um, so once you get that done, then you can broker a very good conversation. So what you're really selling when you're selling the healthcare brand is how do I moderate a, a, a productive conversation that the brand acts like a password so that when the patient pronounces the brand name and the doctor hears it, there's an engagement and a dialogue that proceeds that's very, very mutually beneficial. Um, and that you don't see that in, in uh, consumer branding at all. Um, so again, you're trying to broker a conversation there rather than sell a brand directly. Um, that's another part of the identity crisis is that I think People think that you can just walk in and just the doctor's going to give you whatever you ask for, which is is not always the case. Um, there's a lot of complex uh, discussions and uh, more than 30 seconds worth of a TV ad that the doctor has to explain to the patient. So again, it's a very complex relationship. You're branding to this couple. One's an advocate for the other. And you have to understand the psychology about why each of them are there in that room and what roles they play in each other's lives. You're blowing my mind, by the way, Vince. This is so fascinating. <laughs> Some of the kind of 
really like technical approaches that you've got here. What, what, I, what I find still really challenging is like, uh, and I'll give you an example maybe to illustrate the point I'm going to make. Um, my father had some um, health issues um, a couple of years ago and he was going through treatment for cancer and you know, I was going along to the to the appointments with him and listening to the physicians and the doctors and that kind of thing. And we were talking about um, treatment options and drugs and that kind of thing. We had no idea what drugs were available in, in that category of solutions to his problem. And, you know, you're just 100% relying on what the doctor is telling you. But I guess in some respects, um, what you're saying is sometimes the consumer will know a product that they're after or they've seen an ad for it or... So, there's kind of actually uh, in different situations, there's different approaches. Sometimes the physician will recommend a a particular pharmaceutical to the patient and sometimes the patient may have already heard of it and they may request it from their physician. Uh, So, how do you deal with both of those scenarios? Yeah, and those scenarios differ by disease type and and by spe- and by physician specialty. So you picked in that scenario. By the way, you added another audience. You said you accompanied your father to the office, and uh, that that uh-huh. you, you played a role of what we call a caregiver. Um, yes. So, so there's the third leg of that stool. Then you've got, you've got the doctor, <laughs> you've got the patient, and you've got the caregiver, and each of you have a different psychology, and the brand has to appeal to all of that. But in your particular yes. scenario. Yeah, I mean, uh, drugs for cancer are are very, very uh, complex and occult. And in that particular scenario, the doctor probably knows two to three times as much uh, uh, than the patient at, at a minimum. Um, whereas with different types of conditions and more lifestyle brands, uh, the patient will know either as much or maybe even a little more than the doctor because the doctor is trained to treat pathology, but there are so many medical brands out that are more lifestyle brands like Viagra that you mentioned before. I mean, technically speaking, impotence, what we used to call impotence and what we call erectile dysfunction now isn't so much an illness as it is a sort of an age-related uh, diminishment, if you will. And a patient will often do a lot of research on what are those out there and which one do I want and ask his friends or, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's a category where a doctor might have left less interest in it and just would give the patient whatever he or she wants uh, in that particular scenario. Birth control pills are the same thing. You know, preventing, pre- preventing birth is not an illness. Um, so very often uh, when a patient walks into a doctor's office and they're asking for a very specific contraceptive, um, they're usually much more educated than the doctor would be necessarily on all of the different complexities around that particular brand. The doctor probably knows a lot more about the side effects and safety issues because you got to read the fine print for that. And most people don't do that. Um, there's a whole bunch of fine print that accompanies, you know, all the drugs and, and stuff like that. It's very category specific. Mm-hmm. It depends on the nature of the disease. Uh, something I, I I was just trying to hold back a laugh there because you uh, you said that um, Viagra is a lifestyle brand uh, and I've just <laughs> I've never thought about it that way but I guess you're completely right so I uh, just wanted to throw that one in there as a bit of a, a bit of a chuckle <laughs> so well the same the same thing with Propecia I mean baldness is not a disease it isn't a disease yet the overwhelming demand that people make on please give me something to regrow my hair led to the led to the creation of that brand it was a side effect uh, uh they found a side effect in the study for a blood pressure medication that it grew hair um and there was such an overwhelming uh call for it to be produced that Merck went ahead and 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 actually sold it 
But it's one of the hardest things to get a doctor to prescribe because they don't see baldness as an illness. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting challenges. Um, so, one thing I really want to actually address at this point um, is is like I, I think there's a bit of a maybe a misconception in, in the industry that um, particularly pharmaceutical brands, but also just like a lot of healthcare brands uh, are doing harm or they're, they're not trustworthy or they're- um, I don't know. They're, they're just not good. Uh, and uh, you were speaking about it earlier about like creating value and about getting good patient outcomes for people. So, uh, let, let's just kind of address this topic because I want to get your opinions about uh, maybe some of those misconceptions and actually what you try to do with your work to create value for customers um, and, and good patient outcomes. Yeah. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is the elephant in the room, so to speak, you know, where um, as I said before, there's a built-in resentment about healthcare. Like, because people have to take it, there's an absence of freedom involved in the decision. People don't want to buy it. They have to buy it or else they're, they're going to have to deal with whatever illness is stolen from them. Um, and there are enough examples of bad agents in this to give the entire industry a brand name. Now, I'll say something that I firmly believe or else I wouldn't be in this field. And I think, I think when done right, there is no other industry in the entire world. And I say industry, meaning a business, not a charity necessarily. There is no business in the, in, in the world that does more good than the, uh, the healthcare industry. I mean, they actually provide, they actually produce products that actually measurably do good, um, and make people feel better and extend people's lives. I can't think of another brand that does that, um, to the extent that, that it, that, uh, the health and wellness industry, uh, benefits from. Now, you would think that they would be universally loved for that, but they're not. <laughs> I think the expectations are really, really high. When someone gets sick, they're not themselves anymore. And let's face it, they go through a range of very dark emotions. Um, there's, you know, they, they're angry. They're resentful. Um, they feel it's a nuisance. Um, they feel like someone's pulling the wool over their eyes because if they don't have a freedom to buy the things that they want to buy, they're, it's being forced upon them. Somebody's making a pro- – and not only that, they make a big profit. Uh, pharmaceutical companies make a lot of money um, because, again, you know, it's a, it, the customers are ready-made. Sooner or later, someone's going to get sick and they're going to need these products. So it's that built-in resentment that leads to, I think, the lack of trust and the um, – just the the general – um, dissatisfaction with having to deal with it. It's, it's, it, it goes either from a nuisance to a nightmare for some people. Um, especially when there's a price increase, you know, if, if a, if glaucoma medicine goes up 10%, everyone's in an outrage about it. But yet if the iPhone from Apple sells for a hundred dollars more than it did last year, people stand in line still to buy it. it you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, <laughs> it, it, there, there's an inequity there. Yes, yeah, and it, and it's a big challenge for the brands that you work with. I want to unpack trust a little bit more. Actually, it seems like trust is really one of the most important parts of um, the buyer decision process when it comes to healthcare. Um, and you spoke about it there, like healthcare brands, especially like pharmaceutical companies, are not inherently trusted by consumers. Um, maybe they are by physicians, but definitely not by um, the, the general public. You know, hospitals are, are slow and horrible and don't give you, you know, a good experience. Um, pharmaceutical companies deceive us with these outlandish claims and um, and kind of lies and trying to, you know, deceive you. And and things like supplements and, and um, kind of vitamins and things like that tend to be overpriced and generally sold by bodybuilders and, and uh, 
you know, these sly salespeople. So, you know, the whole industry is really suffering from this trust issue. But really, all the customer wants is a brand they can trust. So, how do we fix that? Yeah, it's and it is endemic. And, you know, I want to address something particularly you said where you said pharmaceutical companies are making these outrageous claims. They can't. They're legally bound not to. But there are there are agents surrounding the entire health and wellness space that do that. Like you said, like steroid supplements or vitamin supplements or uh, over-the-counter products. I mean, uh, the Cheerios on their box, the cereal Cheerios on their box basically says it's part of a heart-healthy diet. Where do they get the right to say that? You know, have they done a study? Or, you know, it's like, you're right. So, so people are bombarded every day with, you know, this is going to do miracles for you and everything like that. And I think it's hard sometimes to separate out the bad actors from the good ones. And so the entire industry gets tarnished by it. Uh, we recently had an industry with a man, uh, an incident rather with a man named Martin Scarelli, who, uh, is a, was a hedge fund manager. And he bought a, uh, or he started managing a pharmaceutical company. He took an, what's called an orphan drug. There's only one of a kind. And he jacked up the price like 800% just to profiteer off of it. Everyone thinks, oh, the entire industry are a bunch of profiteers. That's not the case. It's one bad actor. And again, it's, it's just like, imagine a hospital. A hospital could do great for 25 years and then God forbid they make a mistake. They remove the wrong kidney or something like that and its reputation goes to pieces. You know, they can't even afford one mistake. And so it's these occasional bad actors, I think, that contribute to it. Um, so it's going to be very hard to control any and all of that. Uh, but I think one of the ways that pharmaceutical companies can help themselves is by not doing a lot of these ridiculous TV ads. I'm very against TV advertising for drugs uh, just because I just don't think that it's a medium that allows you to have a sophisticated dialogue about it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, TV is supposed to entertain. And again, drugs aren't entertaining. So drugs are doing a tap dance on TV. And that's not what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be having a responsible dialogue with you. And I'm a bit of an outcast in my own industry for saying that we shouldn't do this, but I, I firmly believe it. I think that, uh, you know, their behavior certainly isn't aligned with the kind of brand image that they want to uh, portray. That's another reason why I say in my book that, you know, it's an identity crisis. I think the pharmaceutical companies have an identity crisis. They do so much good, and yet at the same time, their bad behavior in terms of, you know, not adhering to the more – uh, sober practices of promoting their drugs um, often hurts them. Uh, you know, I, I roll my eyes a lot of times when I see some of this stuff and I scratch my head and say, what are they trying to communicate? They're showing this 80-year-old couple running around on a beach because of this pain reliever. It's like, they're lucky if they can go up a flight of stairs without groaning. It's like, what are they doing, you know, with their golden retriever on the beach or whatever? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it, 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 it undermines the trust that they should be garnering, you know, I... Uh, it would be really good if they just talked straight and did some tough love and basically said, hey, no one wants to take this stuff and it's it stinks getting older. But let's face it, if you got to take something, ours is the brand you should be taking. Talk to your doctor about why. I mean, if they had some honesty there, you know, um, but, you'll, you know, the industry is not, not going to change. I don't think those. Uh, they're too entrenched in their habits and they don't have to do good marketing because like I said, their products sell with good marketing or bad marketing simply because they have to, people have to buy these things. So it's, uh, there's no profit, there's no profit, uh, incentive to do good, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Or to do good marketing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and and the the TV ad thing I think is really funny. Um, I think it's probably more endemic in uh, you know American markets than it is here in Australia because you know when I was traveling in America last year, you see ads on TV. And like you said, you've got the the old people running around with the golden retriever, classic setup. Um, they must all just use the same casting agencies uh, when they do this. Yeah. And uh, and then you know it's a thirty second ad, right? That's a standard ad uh, TV ad spot. Uh, and fifteen seconds of that ad is somebody reading through two paragraphs of terms and conditions and disclaimers about how um, you know speak to your physician, you know. Um, Results may vary, blah, 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 blah. And so, that also contributes to this kind of um, trust uh, factor, this identity crisis, because, uh, you know, you're trying to present this really fluffy thing and how it's going to solve all your problems, but then you're uh, disclaiming uh, and you're reading out all the fine print. Now, I know it's legislated, but it kind of contributes to this image problem. That's an excellent point. It's it's a really, really good point. You're absolutely right. Um, Because they're legislated to say that, um, anytime you make a claim, even if you make a claim about how the product is dosed, like it's, you know, take this once a day, the minute you, the minute you say what the disease is and then you make a claim about the product, you've automatically got to read all of that, what they call fair balance. And you're absolutely right. That's what all, that's what everybody focuses on. You're hearing things like cancer and diarrhea and nausea, you know, well, you know, and you're looking at these fluffy images and at the same time you're hearing this horrible set of side effects that, um, that only occur, by the way, in like 1% of patients. You know what I'm saying? But they, they, by law, they have to, they have to recite these things. Another reason why TV advertising doesn't present a very good story. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the brands a lot of times are a lot better than they sound on TV, you know? So, Vince, I want to talk about innovation in healthcare. Um, and, and this is going to tie, um, very similarly to what, you know, your expertise is in branding, but kind of like how technology is shifting and, and moving this industry forward as well. There seems to be an emerging trend in many industries, um, retail outlets in particular and groceries towards providing private label substitutes for products. Um, we're seeing that quite a lot in America. It's quite prevalent in Europe. And um, in Australia, we have the same problem because uh, we have a duopoly of, um, of grocery chains, basically, and, and they're um, they're pushing out all of the brand name products and, and kind of replacing them with very similar looking, um, you know, the labels look very much the same, private label brands. This kind of happens in healthcare as well. And, and there's this kind of interplay between, you know, the legal side of things, there's patents and things like that to prevent brands from copying your um, formula of active ingredients in a drug and that kind of thing. But I wanted you to talk about like how, how do you deal, like maybe we can talk about the legal side of it, but also how do you deal with um, the entrance of these generic low-cost brands that uh, that essentially do the same thing. Well, this is it's a very complex uh, subject matter, and uh, I don't know if your your listeners are aware of it or whatever. But the patent life of a pharmaceutical is very, very, very short compared to the patent life of a consumer good. You can have a patent life on a consumer good that's you know extends for a hundred years. Um, whereas the patent life of a pharmaceutical from the time it's first examined in a lab to the time that it goes off patent, maybe 20 years. And out of that 20 years, maybe seven or eight of them are spent bringing the brand to market through clinical trials and all the other marketing and branding that has to be done. So that by the time a brand gets to market, it may only enjoy 10 to 15 years or 10 to 13 years of patent protection. After that, it goes off patent and anybody, anybody that makes it according to the can, that can duplicate, you know, the, the, the manufacturing process. Anybody can make it. 
Um, and so you take all that intellectual property and you sell it at a fraction of what it costs to develop that intellectual property. And those store brands, those, you call them generic, but they're not. There is no really such a thing as a generic brand. Um, they're store brands, you know, they're, they're, and the store brands have big brand identities as well. Um, they, they build trust and they build, uh, you know, their own brand personality with people. So, um, it's, it's a, it's a problem that, uh, healthcare brands have to get very innovative in technology to keep their share of the marketplace. So one of those is in, uh, the dosing form. There are a lot of products that, um, you have an extended dosing form. So let's say, um, there was a product called Effexor, for instance. It's an antidepressant and their patent run out and then they produced Effexor XR which is a once-a-day version of their twice-a-day drug. You can get another seven years of patent life just by having a better dosing formula that uh, you have patent protected. Uh, another thing are what they call value-added services. Um, you know, healthcare, medicine is only one fraction of the way people stay healthy and well. Um, it's about exercise. It's about diet. It's about uh, lifestyle changes and things like that. So a lot of times the competition... Um, a lot of times pharmaceutical companies will add what's called value added programs. So the store brand, uh, might not give you, um, a coupon off at the gym, let's say, but, you know, or they might not give you, uh, uh, dietary tips on the website, or they might not give you, um, you know, an, a book about exercise or something like that, or, at, or create an app for these things. Um, that's the sort of the new wave that pharmaceutical companies are, are coming up more in the consumer technology industry to provide broader services than just the drug itself. They provide services around the whole nature of the disease and the lifestyle that the, that the disease is affecting. Um, but pretty much when a drug goes off patent, it's like a feeding frenzy. Um, and that's, that's the boon, that's the boon to, to mankind, to humankind is that suddenly this brilliant technology is now available for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, okay. All right, fascinating. And and uh, I actually wanted to ask, like, because you're giving a really interesting insight into how this kind of industry works. You, you get a 20-year patent license. There's maybe seven or eight years of um, production before it even hits the market. What kind of money are these pharmaceutical companies investing to manufacture and test and then develop, you know, bring it to market? Like, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Billions, billions. I mean, you know, we're talking double digit billions. Um, is that per, per drug? Um, or is that the industry as a whole? Well, in order to get one drug, you probably have to investigate about 200. So, and well, let me, put, let, let, let me back up a second. So there's two ways of developing a drug. One is the old fashioned way that pharmaceutical companies do, which is you go into a lab and you mix chemicals together and you test it in rats to see what happens. But you know, you know what the chemicals are. It's not just a blind experiment. You know, you, you know, you take chemicals that you know that you're trying to reduce blood pressure or you're trying to increase mobility or you're trying to reduce pain or, or whatever or affect mood and you're playing around with these chemicals and it's trial and error. And so you, you know, you get something you think it might work and then you get another one and another one and another one and you wind up with a hundred or so different entities. And then you start testing them in animals and in, in, in these early, early studies to see if it does any good or God forbid that it, it hurts anybody. It, it hurts any of these creatures or anything like that. You know, like they tested in rats and, and monkeys and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. 
another another reason people probably hate the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> yes, um, there's a um, long list. <laughs> well, you, well, believe me, people don't want to test it on them. You don't want to be a human guinea pig. Uh, yes. The other way to develop drugs is what they call rational drug design, which is what biotechnology companies do. Biotechnology, actually, they look at a process that's already occurring in the body, and they engineer a protein that, when introduced in the body, fixes, like it, it behaves like a, a part of the body's own immune system, and it'll fix uh, a problem. It'll kill. It'll it'll stop a cancer from duplicating, just like a body's own immune system will. Or it'll it'll shut down um, uh, an immune response that causes you know psoriasis or multiple sclerosis or uh, other immune responsive conditions. Um, and that that's a very rational drug design. That's the really where the future has been lately. Is not in the chemistry lab, but in that you have all these scientists doing all these trials, and just you know, it, it costs billions and billions of dollars. Now, if they hit a product, Lipitor at Lipitor enjoyed peak sales of fourteen billion dollars a year. So they recoup a lot of that money when they do get a blockbuster, but they have a lot of duds. They have a lot of brands that they lose money on. Uh, but all anyone ever hears about is the big blockbusters that win and that make, you know, five to 14 billion a year in sales. That's all anyone really ever hears about. You never hear about the thousands of drugs that they paid money to develop that never came to market. Um, and again, you know, it's, uh, it's a trial and error kind of thing uh, for the most part. It's it's very, very sophisticated science when you put something inside the body. Yeah, it seems very similar to like the venture capital industry with technology um, startups and things like that. You know, how many, how many Silicon Valley startups are there that have failed compared to your Facebooks and your Googles and your Amazons? Those are the, the darling childs and, yeah, you know, to compare them to um, some of the pharmaceutical and healthcare brands and, and how many failures have they gone through to get to that point? So, I, I just want- it was really interesting hearing you talk about uh, some of the kind of processes to develop this. And it's it's funny that you have kind of positioned yourself as a, a healthcare branding expert. Uh, and we we're talking earlier in this conversation about, you know, taking years to work on a product before it even gets to market. So, you're working on something for three years before um, anybody's ever seen it before in conversations, in work you're doing, the research, all that kind of stuff. Does that mean that you get to charge a lot more for your services than what you would uh, had you been a consultant for uh, consumer brands, for example? In general, yeah. I mean, the simple answer is yes. And the reason is because it, 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 I require, it's not just the time I have to spend on it, but it's also, it's the, it's the, it's the skill set. You know, I have a skill set and, and it's not just me. It's, I have a lot of colleagues that do what I do in the industry. Um, just none of them have written a book about it. Um, <laughs> um, but we, we have a skill set that, um, is very, very, I mean, we know everything about the industry. We know how the drugs are made. We know that we know, we know the doctors and what makes them tick. We've just spent years and years and years talking to everybody and learning all of this and learning the science behind it and branding the science behind it. And, um, it's, it's, uh, because of the skill set, the pay is usually, uh, on a scale that's better than the consumer branding industry. It's not as cool. I have to admit it's a nerdy, it can be a nerdy business to be in, but at the same time, yeah, no one, you know, again, you know, I, I, you know, when people say, what are you working on? And you're like, well, I'm working on this device that, uh, treats brain cancer. You know, it's like, okay, next subject, you know, I, they don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but if you tell somebody, hey, I'm working on a startup and here's a new app that I've got and everything, suddenly everyone wants to know what you're doing and everything. It's, 
it's a conversation killer when I talk about what I do for a living. But at the same time, <laughs> um, it's a very, very, you know, um, rare skill set when you compare it to the rest of the industries. Um, you really have to know, you know, tremendously what you're doing. Uh, because there's a lot of money riding on, uh, there's a lot of money riding on, on the products themselves, number one. And you're talking about people's lives. I mean, I chose to work in healthcare. People who work in my industry, it's not by accident. It's by choice. Usually, um, there's been an illness in your family and you, you become fascinated with the whole process. So you want to become part of the communication process or work on the pharma side of the business or whatever. Um, other people, um, they come from medical families. That's how I got into it. I, I come from a medical family. My father's a doctor. My brother's a doctor. My mother was a receptionist in a hospital. Uh, I worked in pharmacies when I was growing up. Um, or you have people that, that think they're doing good. Um, you know, selling the next brand of cat food, you can pat yourself on the back for that. You know, it may be a cool job, but you're not, you're not preventing hepatitis C. You know, you're not helping somebody with, uh, cystic fibrosis live another 20 years. Those, we take those accomplishments very, very seriously. So, Vince, where's this industry going? Um, I, I want to ask you firstly about Lemonade, which is uh, an American startup, actually Silicon Valley, uh, funnily enough, since we were talking about that before. Lemonade, it's, it's spelt with an A-I-D at the end, as in, you know, kind of linking it to healthcare. Uh, They've gained a lot of uh, attention recently. They're they're essentially a uh, a brand that, I mean, in simple terms, you can um you can get a prescription from an app in kind of like a chat based format rather than having to go to your doctor and go through this whole thing. And it's a flat fee and and it's a lot easier. It's very you know um Silicon Valley esque of making an app to solve this. Um, it's kind of like the Uber of um of doctors, I suppose, in a way. Do you consider something like this true innovation or is it just fancy marketing? No, I, I think I think it's an innovation. I mean, I'm really happy to see healthcare embrace digital innovation. They've been slow to the party. Um, a lot of the reasons why is it's, it's tough to control regulated brands in an unregulated conversation, let's say online or in chat rooms or on Facebook or something like that. So they really haven't gotten a handle of how to really utilize the digital innovation and the digital platform to engage customers. And they're a little bit backwards in general. Simply, like I said, they don't have to be good marketers because sooner or later people are going to find their brands one way or the other. Um, so it is an innovation and anything that, that decreases the amount of time or decreases the friction, uh, around, uh, the whole process of healthcare, I think is a good thing. So I'm really happy to see companies like, like Lemonade, um, experiment. Now you're going to, you're going to get some failures. You're going to get some, some things that are what I call brilliant mistakes, you know, where it's, it sounds like a good idea, but oh my God, like for instance, um, lemonade right now, you can only get prescriptions for about, I don't know, maybe six to eight or nine different categories. And they're, they're not lethal categories. So you can get, let's say you can get birth control pills or you can get acid reflux medication or acne medication. Uh, you can get Viagra there too, I think. Um, none of these are life or death conditions. Imagine if, if the, if, 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 through the app, they misdiagnose a situation and a person takes these drugs and dies, for instance. That's not likely to happen with the categories that they're promoting right now on their, on their site. So as long as they keep it, you know, to basically, you know, antibiotics for urinary tract infection, that's a pretty well-known thing. Cause you have to, you have to understand, you know, doctors are brilliant diagnosticians. When you come in and sit in front of them, 
they're listening to what you say. They're looking at your body language. They're looking to see if you're lying to them because patients lie all the time. I know I lie to my doctor all the time about how much I exercise, you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a funny uh, like industry joke. It's like if when you ask uh, how much how many days a week you're exercising, you're minus two, and when you say how many days a week are you drinking, you uh, you're plus two. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's uh, it, it it's built in. You have to account for that too. You have to uh, really account for the fact that people do lie. Um, like with erectile dysfunction, you actually have to come out and say you have a sexual problem. Um, and you can imagine how many people don't really believe they have a sexual problem, but they've got to say that in order to get the guy to write the prescription. Um, but back to your initial question, I, I think the technology is an innovation. I think they picked some therapeutic categories here where uh, no one's going to die. You know, uh, the worst that could probably happen is maybe someone will either not have their condition treated because it got misdiagnosed over the app. Um, and it may not be the flu. It may be something else or... It may not be uh, the right antibiotic for the sinus infection, but they'll find it. It's not going to kill them or anything like that. So, um, uh, you know, all of these, you know, another another technology or another innovation are these walk-in health clinics now, uh, which are uh, which are refreshing, quite frankly. Uh, no one wants to go to a hospital, but people don't seem to mind walking into urgent care centers because, hey, it's on the way to get my dry cleaning. Or it's it's on the way to the supermarket where I was going to pick up a quart of milk anyway. And look, I, I don't have to wait online. I I can sign in. I can see somebody really quickly. Um, those are kind of, those are going to be the the point of care places that really redefine the way hospitals work. I think, um, and it reminds me of Lemonade in the sense that they're really they're really thinking about the customer and how do I insert myself in the customer's life so that they don't have to actually put their entire life on hold to go to a doctor or to go to a hospital or an emergency room or something like that, unless it's really, really serious. Most medical conditions aren't really serious. They're, you know, they're like life. They're, they're nuisance conditions. So I, I, I applaud Lemonade. I think it's a, it's a really great idea um, for the way they've developed it and set it up. Mm-hmm. And, and Vince, some of these questions I've been asking you over the last few minutes are actually from uh, some listeners to to Mate. So, um, that's they're, they're kind of like a really interesting plethora of people from different backgrounds wanting to understand different parts of the healthcare industry. The next one I wanted to ask is actually a, a really fascinating one. What company uh, do you think would be better positioned to um, be a healthcare disruptor, Nike or Amazon? Oh, Amazon, hands down. Uh, that's a great question, first of all. Um, Amazon, hands down, in my opinion. And the reason is, is because- That's not what I, that's not what I thought you were going to say, but I thought you were going to say Nike. So, I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear the answer to this. Uh, yeah. And then I'd like to hear why you, why you think it should be Nike, because I'm, I'm sure arguments can be made on both sides. Uh, sure. But Amazon is what I'm calling it lately, a super brand. They, they start out having distribution- and they're just they're distributing other people's goods and then now they're starting to make content so they're starting to do they can produce their own content television shows and movies and even books and things like that they're um you know uh they charge me a fee for for promoting my ebook for instance you know so um their their sense of distribution and the content that they provide you never see those two things in the same organization. Imagine it in the healthcare space. Imagine if they decided to go into the go into the pharmacy business. They could have um, they could have distribution of pharmaceuticals 
as part of their business because they've already got a distribution network. Um, suppose they decided to um, line up with uh, a national brand of gym, of gym, like the gymnasium, you know, um, and have uh, and have that. Um, suddenly, they're surrounding your life with everything they, you know, with just the content, what you're watching, what you're eating, uh, the products you're buying, uh, how you exercise. Um, I, I just think they're closer to uh, that kind of healthcare dominance, uh, just because of the way they've set up their business. Um, I'm curious to think why why uh, why Nike would do that uh, or, or better. You think? Well, I, I was kind of thinking Nike from a different point of view. Nike, their kind of brand ethos is just a bit more about uh, around like being active, and and that's kind of why I'm linking it more to their positioning and why I thought that would be better at, as a healthcare disruptor. I, I think it's interesting. Like Nike had an attempt at this a few years ago with um, the Nike Fuel Band. That was almost like version one of of the Fitbit before Fitbit came out. They had a, a really good go at that. Uh, it was a big technology innovation. Everyone was celebrating them as, I, I guess, a healthcare disruptor, trying to get more people more active beyond just selling, you know, runners and, and apparel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually creating a technology to encourage people to walk to work rather than take the bus or to, to take the stairs instead of the lift just to get a few more steps in to be more active. But mm-hmm. they've since shut that division down, which is kind of interesting. And Fitbit is still surviving, although um, not doing as well financially as everybody wants thought they were going to. So, I don't know. I, I just thought Nike's kind of brand was more positioned around wellness um, rather than Amazon. But I do take your point that I think Amazon has a lot more of the infrastructure in place to be able to, to act on this quickly. You know, you think they do same-day delivery for people in America. So, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to do same-day delivery for pharmaceuticals or uh, other kind of healthcare-related services, then that's far going to um, exceed what any other kind of competitor can do from a uh, logistics point of view. Yeah. You know, Amazon probably is the, the best logistics company in the world right now. Um, so, yeah, uh, interesting, interesting kind of little argument there. In what other ways are we seeing technology revolutionize the healthcare system? Well, like I said, it's been slow. I think the uh, – I've written blogs about something I call the social brand. Uh, healthcare brands can now be social. They can invite people to join uh, chat rooms. They can create events and sponsor events um, and use the – avail themselves of, you know, digital technology – um, Merck, uh, I worked on, a, Merck developed a technology called Vree. It's V as in Vincent, like my name, R-E-E. Um, and they developed this interesting technology in conjunction with IBM where, um, they, they were, uh, coming up with different applications and different technologies to, uh, care for the, care for sick people and to promote wellness so that let's say you got a prescription for a Merck brand. Um, there would be a special app developed around that illness and disease that the doctor would use to track progress in their office and keep in touch with the patient and things like that. So the, they're investing a lot more in technology in terms of surrounding uh, the customer with services beyond just how well the drug works. They're, uh, they're surrounding the customer at what they call different touch points throughout their day, reminding them to take medication, cautioning them against things they shouldn't be doing or eating, reminding them to exercise and things like that. Um, or even warnings like, um, if you have an elderly, uh, family member, you know, uh, an app that signals you in case they're in trouble and they can't, you know, I'm, I've fallen and I can't get up <laughs> kind of a thing. Now, the, uh, 
again, they have trouble in the digital space a lot because they can't regulate a, they can't regulate the conversation. Imagine if they put up a Facebook page, which some drugs actually have. But you can go on that Facebook page and say, this drug stinks and it, it killed my, you know, my cat ate a pill and died. You know, you could say all these ludicrous things or whatever. And the FDA in the, in the United States would close down the site saying, you know, you're, you're not promoting regulated speech. Um, so it's, it's a tricky thing. They haven't figured out how to master it yet, but certainly through, through apps, um, I, I think they've done a really great job in terms of, uh, matching up. Uh, how people go through their daily lives with the drugs they're taking to make it easier for them to integrate medication with everything else they're doing for health and wellness. Mm-hmm. And Vince, the, the, the most popular question I got from listeners um, came from quite a few people, and I probably shouldn't be surprised about this, was uh, around medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about like, you know, in America, medical marijuana is... Uh, I guess, common in some states, and, and it depends on where you're situated. Um, in Australia, it is something that is th- they're starting to do some trials on. Um, and again, it's state-based legislation, which makes it a challenge. But let's just kind of take a little bit more of a high-level um, picture view of this and and talk about, like, if you were engaged by a brand to develop a brand or, or a kind of campaign, um, a set of expectations around... Uh, uh, medical marijuana, how would you approach that? What would it look like? So, you want, Adam, you want me to take a high level view? Is that is what you actually said? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, was, uh, that was unintentional. Thanks for picking that up. <laughs> um, so, I actually have done this. Um, I launched, uh, there are five medical marijuana brands in New York State, and I launched one of them. I launched one of the identities. And, uh, it, the rules in New York State are very, very strict. Uh, you can only have one of 11 medical con- – each state has their own rules. Okay, so each state has their own rules. No one has figured this out. There are no national brands. It's all done on a state-by-state basis because in the states where it isn't legal, you can cross the state line with your supply of marijuana and get arrested uh, or bring it to the airport and get arrested because it's, it's, it's federal territory. So um, – it's culturally uh, still taboo in the United States, but more and more, I think people are scratching their heads and saying, if we could relieve suffering in people, you know, pain is a huge issue. Uh, if you find out that formulations of medical marijuana can reduce pain in people with AIDS wasting or oncology pain, why wouldn't you want to study this? You know, it's it seems counterintuitive to the health and wellness interest uh, industry. And I, I think doctors would be fine uh, prescribing medical marijuana as long as they knew that they couldn't be arrested for it or lose their license for it. So uh, in the United States, people talk out of both sides of their mouth. We're still a rather puritanical country. Um, we were founded by Puritans. And um, they just have this terrible fear that somewhere someone is having a good time. Uh, and they don't like that. Uh, but I, I've, I've tried medical marijuana because it's legal in New York State and it doesn't get you high. This is the other myth about medical marijuana. Um, they, they produce the strain of it. Um, it's been shown to have tremendous clinical activity in diseases like epilepsy and multiple sclerosis. It actually reduces the severity of the illness. And national studies are not allowed. Uh, you have to do studies at a very local level. So even clinical trial work is not permitted. So it's, it's really crazy. But the work that has been done and a lot of the anecdotal evidence about medical marijuana is that it has tremendous potential if it's manufactured just like a pharmaceutical, meaning 
don't just smoke the grass or any kind of any kind of marijuana actually take it into a laboratory and isolate the components of marijuana that have therapeutic capabilities now mm-hmm. the the brand that i did is called alayant a l l a y e n t and we named it that because it it's supposed to allay suffering uh, to relieve suffering we weren't allowed to make any claims about it like that it it improved disease illness and all we could do was talk about its physical characteristics uh what dosing forms does it come in what's the ratio of cannabinoids the cannabinoid that gets you high is called tetrahydrocannabinol and that's uh thc um, the cannabinoid they isolated that does a lot of therapeutic good is called CBD or cannabidiol. Um, and it's the cannabidiol component that has been proven in clinical trials to reduce epilepsy seizures and uh, things like that. So they have yet to produce uh, marijuana strains on the uh, sort of chemical level that they do with drugs. That's where the future is going to go with that. What a doctor wants to see is every time someone takes a spoonful of medical marijuana syrup or tokes on a medical marijuana vaping pipe, they get the same dose of the medication dose after dose. So there's a consistency there. That's sort of where it's going to go. It's going to go from this agricultural product almost to a lab type of a product um, and as it gets more specific, it'll be used more and more. There's a company called GW Pharmaceuticals that is going to produce the first ever marijuana pill that is FDA approved. Um, that's probably going to be next year sometime. Uh, and uh, th- its indication is going to be for severe epilepsy. That's really going to change things up, I think, and make people think twice about the potential of medical marijuana for a variety of illnesses and for pain. I'd love to see it tested in pain. We haven't solved that problem. Opioids are terrible. Uh, they're addictive and marijuana isn't. So, uh, uh, But you have to market it more like a pharmaceutical brand. You can't market it like a party drug. No leafs, no, you know, no green leafy images, no, mm-hmm. no wacky sounding names. I mean, the name Alliant, that could be for a brand of blood pressure medication or it could be for a brand of antibiotic or whatever. Um, and the identity that I created for them made it look like a pharmaceutical, something you would, you would get at a pharmacy. So, naming is actually something that um, you've mentioned a couple of times there that I'm, I'm finding really fascinating. Is there kind of um, a, a science behind coming up with a pharmaceutical name? They all kind of have a similar ring to them, I think. Um, but, yeah, kind of what's the, what's the strategy behind that? So, naming is, a, is an industry all in and of itself. It's a, it's a, sub, it's a sub-industry of branding. Uh, and there are people that are – there are firms that specialize only in naming because that's how, that's how much of a, a specialized skill it is. So, think about the issues that drugs are facing. A drug name can't sound like any other drug name. So, there used to be a, a drug called Losec and there is a drug called Lasix, L-A-S-I-X – and when the doctor who has bad handwriting would write the name of a drug, they would they might get it substituted at the pharmacy for something bad. So let's, yes, let's, and we know doctors have horrible handwriting. So <laughs> exactly. So imagine writing Losec on a prescription, which is for uh, GERD, you know, for acid reflux, and the pharmacy fills it for Lasix which is a blood pressure medication and that person takes that drug and all of a sudden their blood their normal blood pressure drops to a dangerous low all because of the name of the brand so names are scrutinized in our industry unlike any other industry um it's one of the reasons why the names often don't make any sense they're they're 
they're complete neologisms, meaning you sort of throw a bunch of letters into a hat and pick them out at random. You know, they don't, um, because the, the drug name can't make a claim either. Um, you know, there, there used to be a drug in the eighties called Zestril, Z-E-S-T-R-I-L. That wouldn't be allowed today because it, it makes a claim. It, it says quality of life. You're going to have a zesty quality of life. And they wouldn't allow that anymore because, um, they would require you to say all the fair balance around it. I worked on a brand called Rogaine. Um, I don't know if that's, it's sold in, in Australia or whatever, but that's a hair regrowth and over the counter hair regrowth medication. And it's a ori- yes. its original name was Regain. And the FDA came out and said, you can't call it Regain because that's a claim. That's a promise. Uh, that you're going to regrow hair, and that's not the case. So they had to change it to Rogaine. Um, so the names are intentionally meaningless because they're trying to get this drug uh, promoted. Now, then you multiply the complexity by the drug has to be able to work in different languages around the world. So it might not mean anything here in the United States, but maybe in Italy it means, you know, kill your mother or something like that. Or maybe in, in Russia it means, you know, attack, attack the czar. I don't know. But yes. you know what I'm saying? Um, there was a famous history where the uh, Chevrolet used to make a car called the Nova, N-O-V-A. Well, when they tried to sell it in Spain, Nova meant doesn't go. Um, now, while that's sort of a chuckle, you know, in the Spanish market, a car whose name is doesn't go – um, you can run into a problem where, with a drug, where again, you know, you can't just keep changing the name at will. You have to have regulatory authorities approve every move you make. So it takes a long time. It takes about a half a million dollars to name a drug. Um, j- just that act alone, it costs about a half a million dollars to go through all the handwriting analysis tests, the pronunciation tests around the world. Um, the comparisons to other drugs for look-alike and sound-alike names, et cetera. And then, of course, to pass the regulatory uh, authorities that the drug name can't make a claim. Um, so when drug companies get a name ready, they often don't know until it could be two or three months before if their name is going to fly. And they'd have to delay their launch. They'd have to change all their packaging. So they usually have two or three names. Uh, they, they approve two or three names um, and pick one of them as their lead name and have two backups in case that first one is rejected at the last minute by the uh, Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. or the EMEA in Europe or any other regulatory body in any of the other uh, geographies. Wow. Th- there is so many elements to that that is just fascinating. So, uh, that's actually a really nice segue to, to one of my last questions, Vince, uh, which is um, what are like, let's talk about just some of the challenges in, in um, healthcare um, branding. Um, and maybe if you could give me one example of a uh, catastrophic failure that you've seen and one example of a resounding success. Sure, absolutely. Um, there, there was a brand uh, back in the 90s called Xenical, X-E-N-I-C-A-L. And it's a weight, it was a weight loss drug marketed by Roche. And, um, Xenical was for weight loss and it worked in a very uh, unique way. It, it blocked the body's ability to process fat, meaning it, it blocked the body's ability to digest fat. So let's say you ate a big cheeseburger or whatever. Your body wouldn't, your body wouldn't digest most of the fat in that hamburger and it would, Pardon, pardon the language, pass right through you, so to speak, or whatever. And <laughs> We're full of puns today. <laughs> yes. I, well, it's healthcare. You can't avoid it. Um, <laughs> so, 
um, basically what happened is, is that they decided to do uh, – their identity really needed to be managed because no matter how much weight you take off uh, for people, they're never happy. Uh, people want to lose 100 pounds, I mean, on a weight loss drug, and you just – there's no drug in the world that can make you lose 100 pounds. It just isn't. But people have unrealistic expectations about it. So I wanted the brand – me and my team wanted the brand to be uh, very cautionary and very humble and – uh, we cautioned them and we said, don't do television advertising. This brand can't be sold on TV. Um, you really have to you know, market the brand. Let's market it with a recipe book for the best foods you should eat with this brand. Because if you eat a high fat diet, one of the awful side effects was that you're going to have the worst, the worst diarrhea you've ever seen in your entire life. I, I believe the actual term in the fair balance was explosive diarrhea. <laughs> And <laughs> I'm going to have some great sound bites from the end of this episode, by the way. <laughs> they decided they didn't take our advice and they, they put the brand on TV and they, they marketed it like a consumer weight loss product. And again, they, they created an identity crisis. And the, what happened was all anyone heard on the commercial was explosive diarrhea and, uh, <laughs> oily stools and, uh, gelatinous movements and things like that. And it was just, an absolute disaster that they had to take the brand, they had to take the, they had to take the brand off the market because it disgusted people and it only it only made you lose it maybe it resulted in a 10 to to 15% weight loss which i know that doesn't sound uh, like a lot if you if you want to lose 40 pounds but if you want to drop like 5 or 8 pounds you could probably do it with this drug but all anyone ever remembered was the side effects, and it became the butt of, of late night jokes. The butt, see, I just another pun. Yeah, another became, pun. Yeah, <laughs> it became the butt of late night joke, late night talk show jokes, and things like that. And Rose sold yeah. Rose sold the brand to another company who markets it now under the name Ally A L L Y, who does do a very you know think of the name, the name change, an Ally, and they market yeah. it. They market it very conservatively, and they market it very humbly. The identity is completely different. So that is a, that's one I was involved with that was just an utter failure, and uh, that's an explosive failure. It's a it, it's it's a colorful failure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the success. Um, Lipitor is probably the biggest brand that I've ever worked on, and Lipitor. Um, when Lipitor first came out, um, no one thought they needed it. Uh, the drugs at the time could bring down cholesterol levels very easily to around two hundred and fifty milligrams per milliliter or whatever the measurement is of uh, the numbers uh, for uh, measuring cholesterol. And the drugs on the market really did that. Well, Lipitor brought it down to 150, which is the new regulations. And the regulations hadn't come out yet. And all the clinical trials that take 10 years to do to show if it really reduces heart attacks, those take about 10 or 12 years to do because, you know, you sit around waiting for a heart attack to happen, you know, over 10 years and you get a pretty good measurement of it. And uh, Park Davis, who was the uh, the manufacturer, their division of Warner Lambert at the time, Pfizer now owns everything. They came to us and said, you know, no one wants our brand. No one, no, everyone thinks it's overkill. No one, no one wants it. It's like marketing, it's like marketing stereo speakers that only dogs can hear, you know, that frequencies only dogs can hear. What do we do about it? So we did some insights uh, into the whole industry. This goes back to something I said earlier. One of the insights that we talk to people about lowering cholesterol is that people want to be able to take a pill and still, still eat the way they eat before 
So in other words, they don't want to give up pizza. They don't want to give up the cheeseburger. They're not going to go to the gym. They're, they're going to sit on the couch and drink beer and watch, and, and watch the, the football game, you know, and they're not going to change. They lie to their doctors. They go into doctors and they say, yes, I'm doing all this stuff. And, you know, I know my cholesterol's high, but whatever. So in the clinical trials for the drugs that were on the market, the clinical trials were proven to work because the people were on low-fat diets and, and mandated exercise regimens. But in the real world, people don't do that. So we created a brand identity for Lipitor as cheating insurance that because you know that patients cheat, and doctors, doctors, we interview doctors about it and they say, absolutely, you've hit on a real truth here is that patients do lie to me. And now that makes Lipitor a lot more attractive because if I know they're going to lie and not take a single one of my dietary or exercise regimens, I want to make sure that the counter effects of their bad behavior isn't interfering with the drugs I'm giving them. So I want this to take them down to a level where their bad habits are going to bring it back up to normal anyway. So, uh, cheating insurance was the, the example and, and Lipitor became the number one selling, um, uh, brand identity for the cholesterol market because it, it actually admitted, it admitted a truth about brands that people cheat. The first ad we did for them was it was a test tube in the shape of a, an exclamation point and it was filled with blood. And the headline said, because cheating is in their blood, Lipitor, the statin with the best stats. And um, it, it, it became an overnight sensation, despite the fact that they didn't have any studies that showed it reduced heart attacks or anything. It just the idea was, yep, cheating insurance, that's a great idea for it. And, and, and men who really don't like to go to the doctor or take pills loved it because it was one pill once a day. And guess what? I can still sit in my Barca lounger, eat my cheeseburger and watch the football game. And I'm not going to die of a heart attack, or at least my chances of dying of a heart attack have gone way, way down. So that's a tremendous example of using really deep insights into both doctor's psyches and patient's psyches where the same brand identity resonates for both of those parties. The thing with uh, audio broadcast is you can't see me nodding away here like in, in acceptance of everything that you're saying. So, um, really fascinating. Um, Vince, I, I was going to kind of give you a chance to sum up um, some of the key outtakes from the book, but I really think that through this whole conversation, you've demonstrated just some of the the really great depth of thinking that you and um, and your agency, you know, do for clients, and and the really thorough knowledge of this healthcare and pharmaceutical industry that you do have. Uh, so I don't know that I really need to to um, labour on that point. I did though want to give you a chance to um, plug the book and uh, let people know where they can find it. Great. So uh, the book is called. Identity Crisis, Healthcare Branding's Hidden Problems and Proven Strategies to Solve Them. And it's available in both ebook format as well as paperback from online retailers like our good old friends at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com mm-hmm. or any of the big uh, book retailers. Um, and while the book, it, the book sounds like it may be just for industry people only, um, it actually has a good, uh, selling reputation among people who are just interested in the way that healthcare is marketed and, uh, the behind the scenes look and specific examples that I've worked on. It's got full color illustrations of many of the brands I've worked on, um, and, and lots of examples that I think would be fascinating to doctors, to patients, and to anyone who's really interested in, uh, the behind the scenes working of healthcare and branding and marketing. 
Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you today, Vince. Uh, I, I just, when when we connected, I, I just thought that this was such a fascinating area of uh, of marketing um, that uh, I, I had to have this conversation. So thanks for coming on the show, um, and uh, and yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. Well, I really enjoy myself. Pleasure's been all mine, and um, yes, really great questions, and I hope your listeners find it of value. Thanks for listening to Mate. What a fascinating episode. It is just amazing when we can talk to people with a breadth of knowledge from a range of different industries and still keep coming up with useful and insightful things that can be transferable to your business, to your marketing job, um, and to your life, all the while being entertained along the way. And I want to thank you for listening into the show. Um, Mate is doing really well. We've had some amazing successes over the past couple of months, getting into the top 20 in iTunes, in the uh, marketing and management category. So, massive achievement. And I just want to thank you for coming along on this journey with me. This episode was edited by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. The beautiful Mate Podcast logo was designed by Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. Mate Podcast is made with love and a few too many cups of coffee in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now.